0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, church. It's so good to be with you and to open God's word, to hear him speak. My name is Brady Goodwin. I'm one of the pastors here at Northway. And as we begin, I wanna invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter two. We're continuing our series in the book of Romans. Today, we're gonna be looking at Romans two, verses one through 16. So if you turn there, we're going to read this passage in its entirety, and then we're going to work through it together uh, as we look at what God has revealed to us today. But Romans 2 verses 1 through 16, um, look at this text with me. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law, who will be justified for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day. When according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray together as we begin. Our father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that as we open the scriptures, we hear you speak and that what you have said to us is the most important thing we could ever hear. Thank you for a passage like Romans two, one through 16. It's honestly an uncomfortable text for us to read. And yet one that lays another foundation stone to the sufficiency and supremacy of the work of Jesus on the cross and of the hope of the resurrection. We pray that even this morning, you would help us to put our hope, not in anything we have done, but in everything Jesus has done and that all of that would be to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as I mentioned uh, earlier at the beginning of our time, we are continuing in our series in the book of Romans. The first couple of weeks, Shay provided an overview of the book for us, as well as uh, laying out the foundation of Paul's gospel ministry and why he wrote the book of Romans. The last two weeks, Uh, Weeks three and four, we saw an indictment of the openly rebellious in light of this universal knowledge of God that all people possess. In this week and in the next, what we're going to see is another indictment, except this time it will be towards the self-righteous and the religious who despite having the special revelation of scripture, as well as the covenant promises of God, nonetheless spurned God's grace through their unfaithfulness. So today is part one of two. What we're gonna see today are four truths that reveal how God's just and impartial judgment will also fall on the self-righteous as it will with the unrighteous. But we're gonna look forward and we're going to see one truth that we desperately need in response. And so look with me at the beginning of this passage and we'll jump in and see this first truth is that God will judge the self-righteous. Verse one starts off, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. He starts with, therefore. Every time we see that we have to think, where is he pointing back to? What is he basing this argument on? And for us, it's really all of what we read in chapter one, verses 18 through 32. Therefore, in light of everything I have said thus far regarding the sinfulness of man and the just judgment of God, this is the basis for what I'm saying now. Therefore, you have no excuse. It's the same kind of construction that we see in verse 20. So they are without excuse. Literally it's you are without excuse. He's connecting these two, two ideas, just as those who openly spurned the law of God, the knowledge of his character, they are without excuse before him because of the, in, the innate knowledge that they possess of him. He now turns his attention to another audience. And he says, you are in the same boat. You are without excuse. O oh man, everyone who judges. He does not yet identify this person, but using the diatribe style that we have discussed over the last several weeks, he cuts off the cheers of those who would have heard his previous indictment in chapter one. They would have sat back in smug satisfaction and self-righteous saying to themselves, well, at least I'm not like that guy. At least I'm not that bad. But Paul in response says, oh, but you are that guy. That's you. And let me tell you why. In the second half of verse one, he helps us to understand. He says, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And we have to see that Paul is not targeting judgment for sin per se. He's saying, as you pass judgment on another, not because you pass judgment, but in your passing judgment, you reveal the true state of your heart. He's saying that it is the hypocrisy and arrogance of those who would have heard this previous section and said to themselves, man, Joe really really needs to hear that sermon. He'd really benefit from that. It's that mindset that Paul is condemning. He is saying that you are without excuse because you're just like these other folks that I'm talking about, but you can't see it. He highlights this tendency to deflect attention in our hearts and to judge others for their seemingly worse behavior. But yet, as our passage explains, such people are actually guilty of practicing the same kinds of things. What does Paul mean? It's it's true, most of these folks that he's now addressing would not have likely been guilty of the same kind of egregious, overt idolatry, sexual sin, uh, depravity that Paul describes in verses 26 and 27 of chapter one. Instead, they would have been those who participated in the kind of behaviors that are depicted in verses 29 through 31. Look up at that list with me. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Because strangely enough, these actions could be considered less overt in some ways because they often exist within a person's heart. Such a person can easily be blinded to their presence in their life. And so they think since I'm not doing those things, I'm okay, I can go on hating other people. I can go on gossiping, slandering, being consumed with my own image, fed by the world, given to secret addiction and compulsion, and everything's cool. As long as I look the part, it doesn't matter what's happening internally. As long as I'm better off than those people, then I'm good. But Paul says that this pattern of being morally, uh, moral externally while being broken internally, this is actually a very significant problem. And we've got to realize this is something that happens everywhere, but for some reason, it seems particularly pronounced in a place like Dallas. Let's consider a few uh, of this kind of patterns, historic and current expressions. We think about our history as a city. Dallas has its own history of hatred towards others. Like other cities in the Jim Crow South, Dallas for decades was officially segregated along racial lines with whites occupying neighborhoods, schools, and positions of influence at the expense of African-Americans and other non-white people groups. The kind of effects that we see from this disparity are playing everywhere you go in our city. It's still there. It may not be official anymore, but it's no less present. At the same time, concurrent with these kind of practices, our city witnessed in 1963, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in downtown Dallas. So tarnished was the city's reputation that it received the nickname, the city of hate, which is something that our city has tried to shake for decades. At the same time, as we go through the rest of the 20th century and along the same, t- same period of time, many in Dallas would have identified themselves as Christians. They would have filled our churches and yet they would have reflected the same kind of larger separations that exist in our wider culture as a city. As Dallas grew in the second half of the 20th century, it became known largely for its image, conscience, nature. No mountains, no ocean, but wealth, status, and success, all of which have shaped our culture more than we realize. As a city on the whole, we care as much or more about what we look like and what we have and how we are seen than just about anything else. But it's not just our history. It's not just our context. We can zoom into our own hearts to see that even though many of us were raised in Christian homes, we were brought up with certain expectations about how to act. When other people were watching, we had dead hearts. And though some of us loved Jesus and were made alive in him, many of us learned how to act apart all the while living with a lifestyle consumed by idolatry. We constantly compared ourselves to others while judging those who stood out or who were different or worse than us in our view, but we were never really worried about what was going on inside of us. And so even today, while perhaps not succumbing to the more externally destructive cycles, many of us nonetheless find ourselves living the same kind of um, lifestyle that we see in Titus 3.3, that we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. These patterns show up. Anytime we gossip about another friend, anytime we avoid a gathering, if we know a certain person's going to be there, anytime we harbor bitterness and unforgiveness against someone that we believe has harmed us without actually discussing the issue with them, anytime we hide our sin because of the fear of shame, anytime we selfishly put ourselves above the needs of other people and so on. We do this, but we keep on thinking that we're a good person. We keep on thinking that God smiles on us. We keep on thinking that all is well. But what Paul emphasizes here is that such actions are just as condemning as the more observable heart sins he identifies earlier. And this is what we see in verse two. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. In other words, no matter its expression, Sin leads to God's judgment and God's judgment is true. King James Version would say that God's judgment is according to truth, which is a better reflection of how the Greek is actually constructed. But the point is this, no matter its expression, sin leads to God's judgment and God's judgment is true. In verse one, it's not exactly clear who Paul is addressing. He just says, oh man, but verse two, we see a clue because he includes himself. He uses a first person plural pronoun. He says, we are a first person plural verb. We know, we know, you and I, we know to explain the knowledge of righteous, of the righteousness of God's judgment. Paul was Jewish. Philippians 3.6 would say, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. And so in effect, what he's saying is we know, we Jews, you and I, we come from the same place. We know that God's judgment is just on those who act in such ways. And being an insider, I know that you battle the very same kinds of things as the Gentiles who cannot help but to succumb to their idolatry that he is addressing the Jews is going to become clearer next week when we look at chapter two, verses 17 through 29. But what's obvious here, no matter how you would interpret is that Paul is speaking to the self-righteous, the religiously minded, those who would believe themselves exempt from God's judgment because of their perceived goodness. They cannot imagine that Paul is actually talking to them which is why he says what he says in verses three and four. Look with me. Do you suppose, O man, do you really think, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, do you really think that you will escape judgment for your self-righteousness and hypocrisy? He's saying something really profound. He's saying, don't you understand? It doesn't matter if you are religious, if your heart is far from God. Yes, God is kind. He is good. This is the way that this term would have been historically translated, his goodness. He's kind, he is patient, he forbears with sin, but his kindness is not meant to lead to your presumption. It's not meant to lead a person to say that they can do whatever they want because God will forgive me. It's meant to lead to your repentance. And yet what Paul says is that because such people are hard hearted, they are unrepentant, they have no concept that God could actually be speaking to them Instead of storing up blessing, which is what they felt like they deserved, they were actually storing up wrath. It's a verb that almost always is used to describe positive consequences. And Paul turns it and he says, nope, you're storing up judgment. Verse five, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul is speaking to his own people. He rebukes them for their particular folly. They believed themselves to be protected against God's judgment because of their heritage, their religiosity and their supposed righteousness. They were instead subject to his wrath because of their hypocrisy and sin. And of course, God is speaking to us as well. When we read this passage, he's highlighting any attempt in our own hearts to acquit ourselves of the patterns of sin that were indicted in this passage when our hearts have been hardened because of pride and folly. He's speaking to us as well. And so to summarize these first five verses, they show us that God's judgment is based upon more than just ornament and ritual or religiosity. It's based upon what a person actually does. And so the righteous, the righteous who honor God with their lips, but whose hearts are far from him, they're going to be judged just as those who will be who blatantly reject the rule of God. We look at verses 6 and 11. We're going to see that this kind of assessment is further demonstrated, and it shows us the second truth. Not only will God judge the self-righteous equally, God's judgment is just and impartial. Look at verse 6. but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek for God shows no partiality. This paragraph is really one cohesive thought. And here Paul explains what he meant back in verse two, when he said that God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things. People will be judged fairly, in accordance with what they do. He says, those who seek to honor him with a righteous life, those who seek to give their lives for the pursuit of holiness and for God's glory will be given eternal life. But those who turn away from him in self-seeking, selfish sin and faithlessness will suffer eternal punishment and wrath. This is what the words tribulation and distress refer to. Some people read this and they actually, you know, they ask, is Paul saying that a person can actually be justified by their actions? Is he saying it's possible? He's speaking in hypothetical terms. He's helping us to realize that this is the standard, but underneath is the assumption. Nobody makes it, nobody meets the standard. We're gonna see this really clearly through the rest of chapter two and into chapter three before we get to the beautiful news of, verse, of chapter three, verse 21. He's saying that if it was possible, God would grant eternal life, but because it's not possible, all people are going to experience the same degree of judgment based upon what they do in their lives. And it's very interesting. You look back at some of our old English translations, in the King James version of this passage, it's described in verse 11, God shows no partiality. It says, God is no respecter of persons. There is no respect of persons with God. In other words, it doesn't matter whether a person is religious or irreligious, whether a person is Jewish or Gentile, wherever they come from, it has no difference and no bearing. Judgment will come to each equally based upon the works that they do, based upon what their lives look like, what they really reflect and demonstrate. So this leads us to the third truth that this judgment is equally applied. It's gonna be further explained in verses 12 through 16. And it reveals to us that all people have an innate knowledge of God's law. First, God will judge the self-righteous just as the unrighteous. Second, God's judgment is just and impartial. Third, all people have an innate knowledge of God's law. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. One of the objections that the Jews would have made in listening to Paul's argument to this point is this but we have the law. We have the covenants of promise. We have the sign of circumcision. Surely that counts for something. And we're gonna discuss what all of those things mean and why Paul is gonna refute their argument next week. But for now, it's enough to notice that what Paul says in verse 13, he anticipates that argument. And he says, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It doesn't matter if you have those things and yet you fail to do them. It doesn't matter where you've come from. If your life reflects unrighteousness before me. Because God is impartial, he will judge all people at the end of days based upon what he has done. Gentiles will be judged for their sin apart from the law and Jews will be judged for their sin by the law. It's not enough to merely possess it, it must be kept. But notice, this doesn't exempt those who don't have the law. In verses 14 through 16, we see, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show, that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Paul is reiterating what he first mentioned earlier in chapter one. The Gentiles have some knowledge of God. They know who he is. They know that there is a standard. It does not matter if a person has not received the special revelation of the law, people understand that there is a God and that he is to be obeyed. And as such, every person has some understanding of the moral responsibility that they have before their creator. What he also says is that on occasion, such people will do what the law requires. And when they do, they reveal that understanding in their lives. Every time a person does something good, every time a person uh, loves another person selfishly and sacri- or selflessly and sacrificially, they reveal that understanding of God's law. When they fail to measure up to those requirements, they experience legitimate guilt based upon the innate knowledge that they have of God's righteous standard. And so according to Paul, both groups, whether the self-righteous or the unrighteous, whether Jew or Gentile are going to therefore experience the same standard of judgment on the day when God judges all people through Jesus Christ. So let me summarize what we have said in this passage thus far. In in chapter one, verses 18 through 32, Paul indicts the idolater and the unrighteous. In chapter two, one through 16, he says that the religious and the self-righteous are in the same boat. Such a person too, stands condemned for their sin. If it were possible to attain God's standard of righteousness through the law, then perhaps condemnation could be avoided, but this is not possible. Even if someone does not have the law, that's not an excuse because the work of the law is written on their hearts and they are therefore accountable to the same standard. All people are thus subject to God's just judgment for their sin, regardless of where they come from or their access to God's revelation. Woof, that is rough. I don't know about you. I read that passage and I go, what kind of hope is there for me if this is true? Because the fourth truth for us this morning is that apart from Christ, all people stand condemned. All people. And I don't know about you, but that in my flesh sounds terrible. Everybody is condemned. Nobody stands a chance. Paul is not saying that some people could make it and if, if, if it, and they can get there, if they try hard enough, he's saying, nobody, nobody can make it. Nobody is going to stand righteous before God on their own strength. And so we have to take a step back and see the argument that Paul is making. And when we do, here's what's gonna happen. We're actually going to see that what he is saying is the best thing that you and I could hear. First, Paul helps us to understand that everyone everywhere, has an innate knowledge of the standard of righteousness that God requires. We all know, we all know. We know this and we evidence it because anytime we make a judgment against another person, anytime we feel indignant at the sins of other people, that standard is being expressed. Why does Paul say what he says in verse one? He's saying the fact that you can judge other people demonstrates that you have an understanding of what God requires and it proves that you don't measure up to it. And so that leads us to the second aspect of this. Why Paul's argument is good news. Everyone everywhere has failed up, has failed to live up to that standard. The result is guilt before God. Most people feel guilty when they do wrong. And the reason they do is because there is an understanding that real wrong has been committed. But even those, as we talked about last week, even those whose hearts are hardened through reprobation, they know deep down that what they are doing displeases the heart of God. It's one of the reasons that they cheer on other people when they commit such sin, because they are exalting and rejoicing in their folly. They know that something else is happening in their hearts and yet they still rejoice. Third, God's judgment is true, impartial, and just. Most of us will readily admit that we are imperfect. We'll say, I'm messy, my life's not perfect, but Paul's indictment is a lot worse. You're worse than you think. You're worse than you give yourself credit for. You're worse than you actually imagine. And unless you see that, There is no hope for you. No one can claim immunity before God's judgment. And in the same way, no one can therefore say that God's judgment is somehow unfair or capricious. As we become aware of the standard of God's law, whether innate in our hearts or revealed in his word, God makes known to us the depths of our sin. And we need to sit here for a moment. We need to sit here and remember that every time we come to God and remember the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel, that that grace is good news because it's needed. That forgiveness is good news because it's necessary. And so we don't need to move too quickly past this reality. Everyone everywhere has an innate understanding of the standard of righteousness that God requires. Everyone everywhere has failed to live up to that standard. God's judgment is true, impartial, and just. It's not unfair. It's not um, unnecessarily wrathful. It's true. This is what Paul will reiterate We'll look at this in a few weeks in Romans chapter three, but in Romans three nineteen through 20, as he finishes this section, he says something remarkable. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Part of the reason we read passages like this and we think about them together, we don't avoid the whole counsel of God, is so that we would never boast in our own righteousness before God, so that every mouth may be stopped." Verse 20, "For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight, since through the knowledge, through the law, comes knowledge of sin." Paul is trying to get us to a place where we say enough. I am sick of my rebellion. I am sick of judging others. I don't have any hope if it's up to me. My only hope is that you would have mercy on me. Otherwise I don't stand a chance. And this leads us to the truth that we need. We go back to verse four. It's God's kindness to reveal our sin. And it's God's kindness to lead us to repentance. What Paul's going to continue to show us in this letter is that yes, righteousness cannot be achieved through the law. It can't, it is an impossibility, but in chapter three, verse 21, and we'll talk about this at length in several weeks. He tells us the wonderful news that righteousness has been revealed apart from the law. It's come the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He's going to, in this paragraph in chapter three, he's gonna first reiterate the truth of God's impartiality. There's no distinction. Everybody is the same, all have sinned. And the verb tense in the Greek in that text doesn't specify how or when, it just says, everybody's done it. We're all in the same place. But then he's going to introduce the profound hope for those who would believe upon Jesus Christ. All have sinned, but are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as the atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith in a world that is only characterized by the wanton sinfulness of God's image bearers, Jesus entered in. He entered in the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was fully God, co-eternal with the father and the spirit. And then he became a human so that he could save men and women broken by sin where we could never be righteous, Jesus was. He perfectly lived according to the father's standards. He perfectly sought out well-doing, seeking honor and immortality. He did it perfectly. And so though innocent of any sin, Jesus was put to death by those who were being so consumed by their self-righteousness, they couldn't fathom that they were deserving of God's wrath. They couldn't figure it out. And so they killed him. But when Jesus resurrected, he secured justification. He secured a fate that a person could never come close to achieving on their own. They could never do it. And so what happens is that when people trust in Jesus's righteousness instead of their own, and they confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and they believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. They will be delivered from the just wrath of God for sin. They will be made recipients of the eternal blessings of God that Jesus has received. What does that mean for us? What an incredible thing to think through and reflect upon, but what does it mean? It means that if you have lived your life thinking that you are good enough, that you can be enough. If other people have told you you're enough, you can be enough that other people are worse than you. You can hit the average of what a good person is and still be okay before God, whether you identify as a Christian or not. The scripture's message to paraphrase the pastor and author Tim Keller is that you are far worse than you would ever have believed but that God's love for you in Christ is greater than you ever would have dared hope. And so what this means is you can put your trust in Christ for salvation and you can be forgiven. You can believe upon him and you can be freed of the endless cycle of self righteousness, of guilt, of frustration, of brokenness and judgment. You can learn to walk in repentance in response to God's kindness rather than to spurn his grace that hope is there for you who are listening, who, re- who realize in, in hearing this message, I don't, I don't ever, I've never believed this. I've never put my hope here. You can believe that today and, and be rescued and be saved. But if you're a Christian, you and I, we need to be reminded We need to be reminded every time we open this book, every time we come together as a gathering of people, every time we come to the table and praise God, we will come to the table soon. I have missed that perhaps more than anything else in our gatherings. Every time we do that, we do so with the knowledge that what began by grace is only completed by grace. The previous statement is just as applicable to you and me. We were far worse than we knew, yet God's love was greater. We were far worse than we knew, but God's love was greater. We were saved, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, to quote Titus 3.5. And what this means is that in our daily lives, we have to avoid two fatal errors. First, we have to be watchful of the presence of these very same things that we once practiced in our self-righteous blindness. We have to be mindful of the ways in which evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, this kind of hatred through anger, strife, deceit, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We have to learn to see the presence of such sins in our lives. When we see the evidence, we have to learn to humbly repent, And to turn to Christ by faith as we receive his forgiveness anew and we are equipped with the Spirit's power for change. But second, we must never fall prey to a type of functional works-based righteousness. Paul in Galatians 3 will say, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh we have, to be, we have to be so careful because we did not receive justification by faith only to be perfected by what we do. We were saved by grace. We are being saved by grace. And so we have to often learn of our need to repent of our faithless self-effort that comes apart from the grace of God. Now, this doesn't mean, this doesn't preclude our efforts to pursue Christ as a believer through the cooperation of the spirit in the pursuit of sanctification but it means that those efforts must never be seen as a means of our righteousness before God. When we do this, we confuse our justification for our sanctification and we find us ensnared in all kinds of traps that God would have us avoid. We are always saved by grace. We will always be saved by grace. When we pursue godliness and sanctification alongside the spirit, we do so only from the foundation of our new life in Christ. And so what does this mean for us as we think about this part of the book of Romans? All of us, apart from Christ, stand condemned. God's judgment is just and impartial. It's true, but in Jesus Christ, we have the righteousness we could never achieve. We have the one who came on our behalf so that we could be spared the wrath of God. We have the one who has brought us reconciliation with God, the father. We have the one who has given us a new life by the spirit. And so we have the incredible privileges of walking in humility and independence and in worship. And so may we always put our hope in that truth. May our hope never be in ourselves but may it always be in the one who bore our judgment and took God's wrath so that we could be seen just as we are in him, righteous, holy, beloved and redeemed. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name. We know this is a hard word. We need this word. And yet at the same time, we can't help but look forward and to see the grace that has become ours through Jesus Christ. Help us to believe upon him even more today. Help us to put our hope in him for our salvation Help us to rest in Him. We love you, we thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.